Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm John Perry. I'm Ted Cover. And today on Review the Future, we are discussing Ray Kurzweil's 2019 predictions. Yay! We're back. Yeah, we are back. Uh, probably later than we said we would be. We missed you, but we had a lot of things making us busy, and now we are hopefully going to be able to do some episodes. But we are not dead, and the podcast is not over, and I'm sure uh, maybe some of you, hopefully not a lot of you, took us out of your feed even. Yes, if you gave up on us, add us back. We may stop and start, but uh, we're going to keep this thing going. Um we're going to do a bunch of episodes now, and today we are revisiting our, our friend Ray Kurzweil. Yeah, we thought it'd be fun since it is 2019, and this is the first Review the Future episode of 2019. It's sort of sad because we're recording this in May already. Yeah. Um, but uh, we thought it'd be fun to look back at uh, this book, The Age of Spiritual Machines, written by Ray Kurzweil way back in 1999. Which is not the better known book by him, no. The Singularity is Near. It predates that. Correct. But the reason I liked this one is because it happened to have specifically chapters in 10-year chunks. So there was a 2009 chapter, there was a 2019 chapter, and then there's a 2029 chapter. Another thing about this book is this book was our personal introduction to Ray Kurzweil and one of the main books that got us into thinking about the future so intensely in the first place. We both read this in college. Yes, that's right. And so I thought it'd be fun to revisit these. And, and, and there's the, the 2005 book, Singularity is Near, which is the more famous book, doesn't have a big list of predictions for specifically this year. It has a list for this, this decade that just wrapped up, but that's a lot more general. And I thought it would be more fun to go back over these uh, these very specific I think kind of bold predictions that were made 20 years ago and see how they fared. And we probably should have led with this, but in case for some reason you don't know who Ray Kurzweil is, he, he may be uh, the most uh, famous futurist that's uh, working today. He's an inventor. He's got a long track record as an inv inventor. I believe he still works at Google at yeah, the moment. I think he's a director at Google. Um, and uh, yeah, he is the guy who really brought to the popular consciousness this idea of the singularity and uh, accelerating change in technology. And yeah, he is known for making very, very bold predictions. And today we're going to hold him to account for what he said 20 years ago. Yeah, which is a little bit unfair maybe, but we're going to do it graciously. Well, it's fair because, you know, he put it down in writing. It, but, uh, you know, we're going to cut him a little bit of slack because, of course, this prediction thing is hard yeah and i think there's a difference between um getting the technical capacity right and getting the sort of uh consumer preferences or like market right and i think he, he he makes predictions that go on both sides of that sometimes he only talks about you know how many teraflops or something but uh, other times he really does sort of predict what people are going to use and and what they're going to choose and uh in the past it seemed to me like his record is better on purely technical things than on yeah. things that are a little squishier and, and honestly harder to predict, like consumer preference. He he comes across in his writing as very much an engineer. So in other words, you know, he seems to be more interested in what technology is going to be possible and, and relatively insightful on that. But as far as what culture wants, um, you know, sometimes he leaves something to be desired. Uh, and, you know, maybe that's a harder job anyways. Right. 
Um, so yeah, let's dive into it. I think this will be fun. Okay, so it's 2019, and uh, his first section is about the computer itself, and this is going to set up some concepts we're probably going to come back to. Um, so first he starts out by saying computers invisible, computers are mostly invisible and embedded everywhere. What do you make of that, Ted? Well, we're in a room full of computers right now, but none of them are invisible or embedded. They're, they're all, smaller. They're all portable. They're thinner. Or or not or installed, and they are thin and light, and um, uh, as we'll talk about later, they don't have a lot of moving parts in most of them. But um, I think this is a fail on invisible and embedded everywhere. Some they're embedded in more things. Some things have computers embedded in them, uh, more things than before, and that definitely feels like it's coming. The embedded part. Uh, yeah, it's a question about whether they would ever be invisible. So there's a few invisible computers like in my house like there's a google home okay which is like a speaker that has an invisible computer in it basically that's pretty invisible and I you guess. can talk to it and it talks back to you i mean that's pretty close to invis- invisible but he means invisible like embedded in clothes it's not like uh, embedded in glasses which we'll talk more about embedded in right so everything. I, I don't have a smartwatch, but if I did, that's as close as we've got to that, right? Is like something like a smartwatch is a full computer embedded in a piece of jewelry. But, sure. But that's really it. I mean, it's not a wide range of those things that we have. We have like one kind of. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it feels like this is the kind of thing that's coming, but not here. Yeah, it doesn't, again, not a crazy idea, but certainly in 2019, we're not there yet. Here's the one way I can, if I want to be super generous to him, here's the one way I feel like computers are invisible and embedded everywhere. Okay. Is that there are servers that are invisible to us that are yes. distributed around the world and they're doing all kinds of computing on our yes. behalf and we can access them through our little cell terminals that are that are wirelessly connected to the internet all the time. So... You still need like a cell phone or some kind of terminal to see what the computer's doing. So it's not completely invisible in that way. But the computer doing the computing is kind of invisible and it's kind of everywhere because it's accessible through the network. Sure. And uh, yeah, so uh, at, at my house, there's an, there's an Alexa. Right. Right. And uh, it's in the bedroom and you can't really see it when you're, when you're in bed. Um, it's like behind a, a chair or something. Right. So you talk and you say something, yeah, and it goes to these cloud servers and gets some information. So it might as well be invisible as far as that limited interaction so goes. So our, our lived experience of this, I think, is maybe living up to the spirit of the prediction, even if what he thinks, I, I what he means, I think, is like you paint some paint on the wall and it has computers in it or something. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're not there yet. But But there's this other way that computers are invisible and everywhere, which is through the wireless network and through centralized servers. Yes. Yeah. And, and maybe to get a better sense of what the scale of what he's talking about, the next prediction is that we have uh, basically full-on augmented reality. He's talking about 3D displays and glasses and contact lenses. Uh, we're just, let's just leave that one aside. Obviously, that's a massive overreach. Yeah. Um, the glasses thing, people are working on it. They've I, been working on it. Yeah, this is like a lab project. Everybody's heard of probably Magic Leap at this point. They're working on something that I think if it ever gets to a completely full realization of what the hype was, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll fulfill this. I, I think the current 
product is I don't know that much about it, but I think it's not quite there. We were just discussing that we have not demoed, you know, Magic Leap's headset or the HoloLens or any of these things that yeah, are out there. These major AR platforms um, are So I don't really know what the experience is, but generally the reviews are very lackluster. They just feel like they're early days and you know, it seems like something's coming, but not here. Okay. Yeah. So next he's got auditory lenses. I don't think he really, he doesn't mean lens, obviously, the way we normally use it, but this is what he wrote. Auditory lenses which place high resolution sounds in precise locations in a 3D environment built into eyeglasses, jewelry, or the ear canal. Yeah. So this is a fail, I think, because, I mean, speaker technology really hasn't changed much. We do have bone conduction Yes, uh, that's the days. newest thing I can think of. But but even that has been around for a while. It's just better now. And, uh, you know, basically still most sound is produced by a traditional magnet and paper cone speaker. Um, so I think this is just wrong. You know, there are high resolution sounds precisely placed in 3D environments, um, but that's done using regular speakers and software, you know, uh, surround sound in a movie theater or uh, ambisonic sound in a VR headset. Sure. And if you have total control over a space in the acoustics and, you know, in like a museum type context or right. some sort of a specialized art context, you can do some cool things with locating sound uh, in very precise areas. But this is not, you know, not something we walk around with on the train. No, the way we locate sound in precise areas is the same way we did when he wrote this in 1999, which is with uh, headphones or boom boxes, basically. I mean, they're Bluetooth now, <laughs> but... They're essentially the same form factor and the same type of speakers. So next he's got, uh, and this one I think you can, you can, you know, we can bend this a little bit, but he says keyboards are rare though they still exist and most interaction with computing is through gestures using hands, fingers, facial expressions, and two-way natural language communication. And I'm going to kind of give him a lot of this. I'm going to give it to him completely. I feel like this is exactly right because most computing is a hand on a Touch screen is gestural. It's gestural or it's talking to a cell phone. But even if it's swiping at an on-screen keyboard, I still think that counts as a gesture and not a keyboard the way he means it, which is like a physical box that you press buttons on, right? And again, 1999, uh, this is well before smartphones and well before wide cell phone adoption. Right. Um, so to the fact that he's getting that most people are interacting with computers via gestures... That's good. So I'll give him that point. I think he's right. I think this is a correct one. I think he doesn't necessarily realize he's talking about cell phones here, but that turns out to be the dominant paradigm for computing now. I assume he's imagining, you know, minority report grabbing in the air type stuff when he wrote this. Yeah, because I think he still thinks we're using desktop class computers, you know, but, but, uh, or laptops. But I think, you know, this is, uh, this seems right. It seems like, you know, even though the, form factor that's delivering it may not be what he thought it still seems right to me i still think we should give it to him i, I gotta ding him for facial expressions being on that list though well facial expressions can unlock your iphone well your face can unlock your iphone right. i don't know if it matters whether you look happy or sad no. as you do that no they, there's no uh, emotive emo, what do they call emotional f computing effective computing, effective computing. Yeah, that's yeah. The name of that. yeah 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 they don't have that yet on uh, on, on 
like common platforms. Yeah. If you unlock it with a sad face, it doesn't immediately route you to a we- like a puppy website oh, to cheer you, you up. Or if you uh, unlock it with a scared face, it like locks the phone so that the person mugging you can't get your. Or just screen. dials nine one one. Or dials nine one one in just, the background. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's hilarious. You could do a lot with that. That's a cool idea, but it's not currently being used as far as I know. <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. Um, people, this is the next one. People communicate with computers like communicating with a virtual assistant and significant attention is paid to the personality of computer-based personal assistants. Um, you know, we have these virtual assistants, uh, they're pretty common. They're pretty mediocre. Um, they're not used for most computing tasks. Um, Oh yeah. I did look at a Reddit thread that was, uh, that was reviewing the same things. And, and on the Redditor on that one gave him a half on this sca- one score on this one. And I agree with that because we do use the virtual assistants, but they don't have personalities really. And we don't, yeah, he, he, he was talking about, you know, he goes on to say, you know, uh, people are going to design the personality and, and give it a name and, and spend a lot of energy, you know, making it a companion to them. And, uh, that does their bidding. And no, there doesn't seem to be any, no one seems to want any of that other than maybe changing the accent of the voice or the gender. That's like all you can really do. And it's all anyone seems to want. Well, and, and to some extent, I mean, it's hard enough to get these things to do their job at all right now. That, yeah. that customization is not really in the cards. Now, you and I have talked about in the past how we don't really even think, given the technology, that super, you know... uh like that personal assistants that have a strong personality are ever really going to be widely adopted. It just doesn't, this is a case where I'm not sure that people really want that. Right. Right. I I agree. I think the market is going to prefer something that's more gets out of your way and does your bidding in an almost reflexive way. Almost feels like your thoughts rather than like a person that you're supposed to care about. I think that's the downside of a personal assistant. Yeah. The people that you care about, the, the artificial personalities that you care about, um, they'll be in games, they'll be, uh, you know, separate apps, they'll be, you know, where you can simulate a romantic relationship or, right, or you know, a therapist or, or whatever, you know, right. they'll exist, yeah. but they're not going to be woven into the thing that you boss around to do your emails because that just makes you feel like a slave master. I, I don't see the benefit to right, that. Right, right. Yeah. Very few people will want that on purpose and almost nobody else will want it at all. It seems like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, the, the next one he nails, as far as I'm concerned, he says, typically people do not own just one specific personal computer. Right. At least in my life, that's true. I mean, I guess there's probably some, a lot of people that have one computer. Um, you and I probably have five apiece, at least. I mean, there's like six in this room right now. <laughs> yeah, okay. Maybe that's... varying uh, vintages. Uh, but, you know, I think uh, everybody I know has at least two or three, and most of those, um, you know... Most of those people still have a PC in my world, but uh, I feel like in in much of the world, especially in China, uh, people have multiple computers, but none of them are a PC. You know, they'll have a phone, maybe they'll have a tablet, maybe they'll have a Fitbit, maybe they'll have a smartwatch, um, but they don't have uh, a regular PC like uh, with a keyboard and stuff. And again, I think, you know, this is pretty good for 1999. Yeah. Yeah. So the next one is... um uh, cables have largely disappeared. I wish this was true. I mean, I think I I want to say... Less cables. Cables, the possibility of a cable, like a low cable house is now pretty high. 
you have to really choose it because uh, there's a lot of legacy equipment in the world. <laughs> um, but all of my newest things have very few cables, somewhere between one and zero. And uh, if I wanted to, I think I could build my house such that power cables were the only cables everywhere. Um, but when you have so many things and they all need power, you end up kind of, you know, in close to the same place. I feel like. Well, and realistically, I still have many, many cables. And there are some applications for which cables are still just better. You know, but uh, cables are on their way to disappearing, and I think it is possible to make cables disappear if that's a high priority for you now. So I think that's, like, pretty close. I don't think it's a full yes, you totally got it, but I don't think he's really wrong either. It's true. It's um, true. Yeah, no, I, I, I think there's been definite progress on this front. Like, if you wanted to, you could, you could eliminate most visible cables from your house so that the only kinds of cables that are plugged in are like battery chargers and charging pads. Okay. Okay. So you're making me more sympathetic. What do we give this a B? I give it like a B. I, yeah, like a, like a solid B, not, not a B plus, but not a B minus. Okay. Either. Yeah. It's like, all right. I mean, technical capacity is basically there. It's not really what's evolved yet, but it wouldn't shock me if like five years from now, most people moving into a new house had basically no, non-power cabling got it doesn't look like we're going to wireless power in the wall super soon which is technically possible it's just more of a cultural thing i think we're just not going to change the way everything works um so yeah Uh, now now the next one is going to take a little more um it's a little more complicated so uh yeah but this is where i mean this is the heart of it though too because this is like really the fundamental capacity question he could have led with this because this is basically (laughs) most other things that are wrong may be wrong because this one is wrong right so he says the computational capacity of a four thousand dollar computing device and he specifies in 1999 dollars uh that four thousand dollar device is supposed to be approximately equal to the computational capability of the human brain, which he has pegged at 2 million billion calculations per second. Now, it's kind of hard to investigate this because it's not like when you just buy a computer at the store, it tells you what its calculations per second is. That's not a widely used metric. Right. Um, But as best I could tell, um, he's off by a pretty large order of magnitude here. Yeah. Um, 20 million billion CPS I th- seems to be roughly 20 petaflops. That's what it looked like to me. I, it's confusing because there's a lot of zeros in these. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I think, it, I think that's... And I think you're right. <laughs> I think that's 15 zeros. Nine for the billion, six for the uh, million. Right. And uh, a petaflop is 15. So uh, there are supercomputers that are in that range. I don't know if they've hit 20, or but they're... There are supercomputers with many, many petaflops out there. Sure. They cost a lot more than $4,000. Right. They're like research project level computers at this point. Yeah. Um, and today's high-end computers are, of course, a lot faster than they used to be, but they're, uh, they're down in like the one teraflop range. Yeah. I, I think y- there's a new Intel... That's right. The Core X, I think, is the fastest consumer chip right now. Yeah. Uh, that's a CPU. And then uh, I saw somebody on Reddit did this with a, a high-end GPU, which is six, which itself is six grand. Like, if you want to spend $6,000 on a video card, this is the one you buy. And that one has a similar total number of flops. Yes. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of jargon here, but basically, 
We're at the price range that he's talking about. You can basically get one teraflop, roughly. Whereas he was saying we could get twenty petaflops, and the difference is uh, a factor of twenty thousand. So, not a small difference. But because we have compute uh, supercomputers today. Oh, that- I'm sorry. The GPU is sixteen teraflops, so it's one order of magnitude higher, but still. Oh. So if you want to use, because GPUs have been, I think, getting more Moore's Law love than CPUs lately. Okay. So I think if you want to be more generous, you can say, well, a GPU is still a computing device, and that can get an order of magnitude above the kind of like okay. highest. So 16, let's uh, let's round that to 20. Sure. Okay. Uh, and then I think he'd just be off by uh, 1,000. Three orders of magnitude. Three orders of magnitude. That's right. Um, so that's pretty good. Yeah. Um, or that sounds better. And again, there are supercomputers that do what he's talking about. So we know that those will probably filter down to the consumer level eventually. <clears throat> yeah, this feels on the way and it feels possible. Um, but it's not quite here yet. It's not coming quite as fast as his uh, charts would have predicted. Um, so it does give some pause as far as like, you know, is this happening because uh, these accelerating returns are running out you know and we're going to have you know harder harder it's gonna be harder to find new innovations or is it just happening because i mean to me the simpler explanation and the more hopeful one is just that the locus of like moore's law improvements has moved downward to smaller things and so we're just not seeing the improvements at the desktop level instead we're seeing them at like the micro tiny level where um, eventually they'll catch up. And uh, so maybe maybe this doesn't mean that we're actually going slower. Maybe it just means that um, the gains are not evenly distributed uh, throughout the market for computing devices. Well, and as long as we're going to talk big picture for a second here, um, again, his predictions are wrong, but they, they're they not insane. They look like things we're going to plausibly get another 10 years from now. Right. Um, but... Yeah, it's unclear, you know, is he going to drift further and further off the mark? Um, Or is he, like, just going to continue to be 10 years behind? Um, Because if he continues to be 10 years behind, and instead of the singularity being 2045, it's 2055, you know, the guy's done a pretty good job. Right. But if every decade he, you know, those his predictions in real life diverge farther and farther, right? um, then he's going to end up looking pretty far off by the end of this. Right, exactly. So it's hard to tell that from here. But yeah, that's exactly the question. All right. So ne- next point, he says, rotating memories and other electromechanical computing devices have been fully replaced with electronic devices. I'm going to give him this. Yes. I feel like fully is a big word, but almost everything new is pretty much using chips at this point, And only like specialized applications really are using spinning disks very much at all. Of the four computers I can see without moving my head, three of the four are all uh, no mechanical parts. But That's, yeah, this this seems like a this seems like a pretty good prediction. Now the next one seems really wrong. Yeah, uh, three dimensional nanotube lattices are now a prevalent form of computing circuitry. Yeah, he missed the boat on this one. I mean, this is a bad one. I mean, we're still still using silicon. Yeah. There's no indication that we're going to stop using silicon soon. It would be cool if uh, some kind of nanotube something were the next paradigm or or if we were to find a new paradigm that would allow the kinds of gains that silicon had before. 
but that has not happened now. We're still squeezing those last few. Um, well, I think this is, you know, to do with his previous thing, because if we were three orders of magnitude faster along all axes, along all silicon, maybe we would have maxed it out by now, but we haven't, we haven't actually gotten to that like seven nanometer or whatever it is range where it's so small that you're basically having atomic, you know, future sizes. And, and I gotta say, this is not something I've really looked into or have been tracking, you know, progress in, in three-dimensional nanotube lattices is a computing substrate. Yeah, I don't read white papers um, and stuff. <laughs> but just anecdotally, I have not come across even discussions of this as being a sort of proof-of-concept lab thing. Maybe it is. I'd love to hear from the audience members if they know that this is at least being tried in some sort of research context. Yeah, but, honestly, I don't even know if it's considered promising anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so the majority of computes... I guess he means computes? cycles. That's what he wrote. Yeah. The majority of computes of computers, I'm just going to say cycles, the majority of computing cycles are now devoted to massively parallel neural nets and genetic algorithms. And those things are extremely important today, but they're not the yeah, majority. So th- this was the one where I disagreed with uh, the Reddit thread that I saw. Oh, interesting. They said no. And I think they're being a little literal here because I think if you're if you literally go with the literal definition of massively parallel neural nets and genetic algorithms, I think, okay, that's wrong. Cause I don't think that's exactly what's going on, but I think the spirit of this prediction is he's saying that, uh, there are things that are derived in such a way that their authors don't know what they are, like, like genetic algorithms are, and that they are, uh, feedback induced in some way, like trained in some way. And I feel like if you if you abstract that out to those criteria, then the machine learning that we use all the time is that. And I think that, you know, like that is true. Like I think the majority of computes, like all the computes happening all over the world are probably being done by things like Google and Facebook using machine learning. I, I would give him the spirit of it in that sense. I just, the majority is a tricky word. Well, I mean, I guess I'm just guessing here, but I figure that between, you know, Google and Facebook, let's say, that's like a huge number of just like the total raw computes of the world. Just just resolving those algorithms, you know? You know, I, I wouldn't know how to even answer this question looking it up if it's the majority or not, but a large portion. Yeah, a large portion. So, okay. Significant portion. In the spirit of being charitable... To, to someone who made bold predictions 20 years ago. Yeah. Uh, like maybe another B or something. Next, he wrote, Significant progress has been made in the scanning-based reverse engineering of the human brain. Um, yeah, this is a fail. <laughs> yeah. Let's just move on from there. But. Uh, I mean, I, I, what, what, the Reddit thread had something interesting about uh, uh, Drosophila, you know, the uh, fruit fly. Yeah. They have completely mapped the fruit fly's brain. That's where we're at. Yeah, that's much smaller than human. And not only that, but the mapping that they've done has not really led to better or more complete understanding. Well, I'm sure it's somewhat more complete, but it has not led to a complete understanding of the fruit fly brain. So we're a long way. Um, You know, not saying progress hasn't been made, but this is a place where I think his predictions have been wildly optimistic is uh, in in some of this uh, like real world medicine stuff. Um, the next one, maybe you can help me understand. It says a new computer-controlled optical imaging technology using quantum-based diffraction devices has replaced most lenses with tiny devices 
that can detect light waves from any angle. Mm -hmm. It's basically talking about cam fancy cameras. Mm -hmm. These pinhead-sized cameras are everywhere. So this is a new camera tech. Yeah. I mean, no. I don't right? understand most of the technical description of this camera yeah, tech. Yeah, yeah. My understanding about uh, camera research right now is that light field photography is the new thing in cameras that's being developed, which once it works will allow you to move around objects after photo uh, photographing them. So uh, it will use a combination of optical and other capture techniques. I don't know exactly how the capture works to capture a um, three-dimensional field of light mm -hmm. rather than a uh, two-dimensional representation of the light from a particular vantage. But anyway, these are things that exist. Now, the second part of this, the pinhead-sized cameras are everywhere. Uh, just regular cameras are everywhere are tiny and everywhere. So I think again, like I'm looking at several tiny regular cameras right now. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so I think half of this is right in the sense that the cameras did in fact get small and move, uh, into all kinds of parts of our lives. So far, there's not a new optical imaging technology to take over video. Video is still, the um, you know uh, uh, charge capture device video where you basically are mimicking like a film camera with a with a uh, digital device that breaks up the light into little boxes and measures what color they are you know that's still the dominant way of making images but there is technology coming along the pike that might change that um, it just it's not here now I mean not not in any consumer available way. But if we, yeah, if we just take the phrase cameras everywhere and again, remind ourselves that this guy's writing this in 1999. Yeah. Sounds a little better. Sounds pretty good. Last thing for this computer section is autonomous nano-engineered machines can control their own mobility and include significant computational engines. Um, no. That's a, that's a hard no. All right. So next up we have uh, education. Yeah. Um, and this is, we're going to get a little more grounded here. So the, 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 the techno... The really techno stuff is done. Um, so uh, he wrote, handheld displays are extremely thin. Yeah. Very high resolution and yeah. weigh only ounces. That sounds like your best tablets today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that all sounds right. Uh, paper books and documents are rarely used or accessed. I mean... It's not exactly true, but... Somewhat on trend. I wouldn't say they're rarely used or accessed. They are still used, but they're no longer necessary. You can use computers for basically anything you would use a paper document for. Uh, most 20th century paper documents of interest have been scanned and are available through the wireless network. And of course, we don't have this because of intellectual property. <laughs> yeah, we have several people have tried to do this, even Google, and have been stopped. We should have the world's books online and accessible. I mean, actually, let's clarify here. I guess like, you know, most important books of the 20th century you can go and buy as a in a digital form so actually maybe i'm being a little harsh on this i guess it just i'm still disappointed that these things aren't at least more searchable yeah um, well i guess that's true if you look at what he says directly it's uh scanned and available through the wireless network available yeah it's it, it, available we're, for we're purchase that to mean freely available but of course the way it's yeah it's if you buy it or subscribe to something or or you have a library card or, you know, there's ways of obtaining things. And most documents of interest are, uh, are available some way, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. There I, are I, still gaps actually, uh, uh, in just like 
there are random things that for whatever reason are not online, you know, uh, still. Yeah. That are not worth scanning, um, or have been scanned, but again, they can't be put online for intellectual property reasons in the sense that, you know, somebody hasn't gotten the right permission to do so. Right. There are some rights somewhere and it's not clear who owns them or something like that. So actually, yeah, this, this is true. We do basically have this. I, I'm just personally disappointed that it's, it could you know, be better. it's not, it's not what I dreamed of in my yeah. head when I read this and, and what is of course technically possible. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Um, so next we have uh, most learning is accomplished using intelligent software based simulated teachers. That's a no. Um, but that's a cultural change thing because you could do that. I mean, it's yeah. technical capacity. I think I give them a pass, but it's not at all. I'm pretty. True. I'm. I'm. I'm giving this an F. You're giving it an F. I, I think no way. I mean, again, this is partially cultural in the sense that I don't think people want this as much as he thought they would want it. I um, think. Yeah, it's like pretending that the purpose of school is learning. <laughs> which as we've discussed before on the podcast it's you know there's other things going on there and you can't as effectively do those other things also the the future of learning or not the the present of learning in 2019 yeah. the cutting edge is online video and you know what it's a kind of a big deal yeah. i mean i mean it's it's old news now but just the the amount of content on youtube uh, the amount of other websites that have specialized educational video content that you can sign up for and the quality of and availability of that stuff is through the roof. And, and I think pretty important, um, a change in terms of, you know, how quickly, you know, a certain kind of person, maybe an autodidact, someone who can, you can learn from videos. Yeah. Um, uh, for those people, I think it is a new world. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's not intelligent simulated teachers. No, they're real teachers making simple videos. Yeah. And what you have, I think, with some of these websites. Almost as good in most cases. Yeah. Is, is the combination of a recorded teacher, a recorded human teacher, and then maybe a little bit of, you know, uh, light sort of test taking infrastructure connected to that. Yeah. Um, with some very simple algorithms that help you target weaknesses or review, um, you know, things on the level of Khan Academy. Uh, but it's just the simulated teacher part, no. Um, for me, that that needs to be something you're having a dialogue with that's right. answering your questions as they come up. Um, and I just don't see that. Again, it's it's questionable to me, like, how much we're going to even need to build that. Yeah. I mean, isn't a simulated teacher just a textbook? <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I feel well, like textbooks like part of, I feel like it's part of learning, but it's never going to be all of it. And there's always going to be desire for a human teacher, even if that human teacher is recorded or has telepresence or is, you know, relating to you by email or something like all those things make sense to me. And they happen more now than they used to. Um, but you want that other person and their mind. Uh, well, and I suspect engaged. it's going to be affordable. Right. Because, the, you know, the, there's so many people that need to work. Yeah. Um, that could be teaching. And so, I, you know, and when you connect everybody and have all of that online, um, you know, it's it seems like it's, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. But I'm, I'm going to say not today. We yeah. do not have this. Right. I agree with that. Um, 
Next one is all students use computation. Computation in general is everywhere, so a student's not having a computer is rarely an issue. That feels like a total pass. Yeah, that's easy. We can move on, I think. Yeah. All right. Uh, most adult human workers spend the majority of their time acquiring new skills and knowledge. I don't know how to even answer that. I mean, you know, the the, the Reddit thread said false, and I was like, yeah, that's a false. I mean, yeah. the thing is that that's not a technical thing, I don't think. I think that's a purely a cultural thing. Um, certainly many adults would do well <laughs> to spend their time acquiring new skills and knowledge. And some adults do that. I mean, I feel like I do that. I have a very privileged life and I get to spend a lot of the day watching YouTube videos and learning how to do stuff. Um, but, uh, I don't think that that's the average normal way that most people are living their lives. Well, and I think he's thinking about this in the context of, a world of accelerating change. Right. And again, he's imagining we're a little farther on the curve than we actually are. Right. And he's imagining a general awareness of this fact that things are changing quickly and that people are responding culturally in the workforce by constantly retraining. Yeah. He is expecting that this is a consequence of uh, increased churn in the workforce, particularly. And it, it so far, it does not... that The evidence of that is not shown up yeah so disabilities yeah um so blind persons use these eyeglass mounted reading navigation systems uh which incorporate the new digitally controlled high resolution optical sensors um i mean since we don't have the just isn't a thing i mean yeah uh unfortunately because that sounds cool and kurzweil himself of course made a lot of money making um you know systems of computers that uh helped people with various disabilities over the years, uh, uh, readers for blind people and stuff like that. And uh, you would hope that, I mean, it's too bad he didn't make this. I feel like he could have, ma- uh, you know what I mean? I feel like he could have made these. Th- that that sounds like something you could probably kludge together some version of with current tech. And uh, it doesn't really exist. I mean, yeah, the disability stuff is tough because it's a small market and, uh, or smaller market. Yeah. And you have to, throw resources at it or it's not going to happen. That's true. But I also feel like because of cell phones, everybody already has, you know, a computer that can run software and use peripherals. So that takes a lot of the burden off of the developer. You could develop an app and maybe a peripheral that, uh, you know, could, could basically just bridge the cell phone, um, and, and help, you know, use it as a computing platform to, uh, to provide all these various uh, services. True. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. this could this could run on phones as opposed to being a totally dedicated device. Because it sounds com- computation heavy. You know, it's going to have yeah. to read signs and stuff like that. Um, well, and he he goes on to say that uh, retinal and vision neural implants. Now we're getting you know we're okay. involving surgery presumably. Yeah. I have emerged but have limitations and are used by only a small percentage of blind persons. So that's wrong. I mean, we don't really have those. I think there's some experiments toward getting cameras in eyes. Um I don't know if you would call that a retinal implant or more of like an eye replacement, but there's some evidence that eventually we'll get cameras to, that can replace This eyes. is a goal. It's a goal, and I know that there's been some progress. I'm not sure exactly where it's at, but it's not something that anybody's walking around with. There are no Even bi- a small percentage. There yeah. are no bionic eye folks yet. Now, the next one is, 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 is better. He says cochlear and other implants for improving hearing are very effective and are widely used. Not widely, although I did 
uh, Google this a little bit, and uh, what I read that was that there are six hundred thousand of these implanted as of twenty sixteen. That's the cochlear implant. Yeah, a, a standard cochlear implant by you know of today's quality, which is they're not perfect. They don't work for all people equally well. Right. Um, there are side effects and so on. They work better, I think, if you install them when you're younger. Yeah. Um, but they, they are out there. Yeah, and they don't have full fidelity, but they are better than nothing. Uh, and they do they do provide you with some hearing. So they are, you know, pretty miraculous, actually. Yeah. Uh, and I do expect they will get better over time, but they don't seem to be progressing at the uh, at the exponential rate. Like, so, yeah, they seem to be progressing but at a more linear rate of progress. So this feels like maybe a C or something like kind of like a, like a half point. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, cochlear, I think I'm willing to give him the other ones seem like definitely not. Well, he um, just said other, so I don't even know what that means. Other is not true. I mean, there aren't other, um, it, options that are currently available. I know there are other things that are being studied, but there's nothing else that, you know, really works that people are using in patients. So, you know, I feel like these are optimistic, not totally off the mark in terms of technical capacities. They're they're close to the mark that way. But but uh, the other thing with health is that uh, it's a very um, regulated thing. So you know even if we were to get better cochlear implants tomorrow, it would take ten years before they were available on the market. So it's a good point. You know I, I, that said, I haven't heard of promising clinical trials or anything like that either along these lines. So you know. It does seem like it's off in real terms as well. Paraplegic and some quadriplegic persons routinely walk and climb stairs through a combination of computer-controlled nerve stimulation and exoskeletal robotic devices. Yeah, so that's a no. I think routinely makes that impossible to give any points to because there is some stuff. There's an exoskeleton that I know they developed for injured vets that can help people walk. There's a thing where the guy kicked the soccer ball with the robot leg. There's the thing with a the big PR yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, so so the, plausible, but not here. It's not going to be that long before better technical options are available for paraplegic and quadriplegic people. However, the next thing, yeah, which sort of gives you the spirit of all of these predictions, yeah. as far as he sees it, is generally disabilities such as blindness, deafness, and paraplegia are not noticeable and are not regarded as significant. Uh, sorry that you is not here yet yeah that is a i hope that comes soon but not now the only way that that's true now there is one way and that is through the internet because you know no one knows no one knows if you're deaf online if you're deaf blind or a dog or or a, a deaf dog or a paraplegic or a seeing eye dog or like a three-legged dog sure with like a cute wagon wheel for the fourth leg now <laughs> Also, one caveat here, yeah. um, there are certain disability groups, I, I, you hear about it a lot in the context of, of, of the deaf, mm-hmm. um, that would actually maybe take offense to this even being a utopia where uh, their uh, disability is not noticeable and not regarded as significant. Because for certain people, this is who've been born a certain way, and that's been their entire life, um, this is part of their identity. That's right. There's a specific culture that's built up around being deaf that yeah. is important to some people. Right, right. So just just throwing that in there. Yeah, worth uh, mentioning. Next up, we've got uh, communication. Um, phone calls. He puts phone in quotes, I, I, which is funny because we call everything phones now. It's, right. Well, it went the other way, but I, I, he, he correctly understood what was going to happen. He just thought that we would stop calling them phones when they became computers instead of stopping calling them computers 
when they became phones. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's still a weird choice that we made. Okay, so yeah. so phone, I guess phone is a better word. It's shorter. Okay. So phone <laughs> calls routinely include high resolution, three-dimensional images projected through direct eye displays and auditory lenses. No. Mm-hmm. Three-dimensional holography displays have also emerged. So obviously we have had three-dimensional displays, not holography, but we've had... Um, I mean, except on stage uh, with musical artists performing. I think those are only colloquially called holograms. (laughs) I don't think that meets the official definition of a hologram. But that's the only thing I can come up with. Right. That's like a projection. But uh, (laughs) yes. uh, (laughs) Well, you know, Um, I I, I don't know where, where, you know, what the technical... But line is for what is and isn't. A but hologram. as far as like you know, the Pre- what I'm the Princess Leia thing doesn't exist. Right. What I'm imagining with a hologram is a screenless image that is projected somehow out of a machine. Right. So it's not on a wall and it's not on a screen. It's somehow floating in the air or something. Um, I've seen holography done with you know smoke. I've seen it done with thin screens that you can't quite see. I've seen like you know. Uh, uh, clever installations and stuff. And we have had 3D televisions and 3D cell phones come out. They haven't generally taken over the market. They haven't been big successes. Uh, 3D has limits. Yeah, but those aren't, ho- those definitely aren't. Not holographic, not holographic, just three-dimensional, just in terms of two eyes, stereoscopic. Um, but uh, obviously phone calls routinely don't contain anything other than audio and maybe maybe video. I mean, that's what we routinely have in our phone calls, um, which is different from 1999. I mean, there was no video. And we'll talk briefly about the 2009 uh, predictions, but he had he previously in the same book does predict video video calls for 2009, which was a more right <laughs> uh, prediction. More right for today. So he's, you know, he's saying, well, it's got to go further. So what goes further 10 years out? And the suggestion is, is it'll be three-dimensional holography, but... Um, that does not seem to be a technology that's uh, that's come along yet. I also this is another one where I feel like screens are cheap and easy now, and uh, you can put them a lot of places, and uh, it's pretty easy to connect different devices to them. And I just don't feel like maybe there's as much demand for this have a screen anywhere thing as you see in science fiction portrayals or as once I might've even thought. Um, yeah, I agree with that. To me, it doesn't make sense to project screens. It makes sense to have ever thinner and cheaper phone style screens, uh, that just keep getting thinner and cheaper and lighter. Um, and it also makes sense to at some point have either glasses or a brain implant that gives you the semblance of screens anywhere you want them completely inside your mind with no... It's true. If we all have the glasses, then we can all see the same thing in the same place without needing um, an actual hologram. That makes sense to me, but I feel like we're going to leap straight from handheld screens that are just better and better to um, mind-held screens, basically, or glasses-held, if glasses ever become a thing. But... um, but I don't see the hologram projector or, or the handheld projector that projects on a wall, which we do have, um, ever really being very popular. They seem like niche tech at best. So we've, next we've got uh, routinely available communication technology includes high quality speech to speech language translation. 
for most common language pairs, like say English, French. And that I think is a pass. Yeah. I, I mean, um, you can get that on the internet for free. Um, now, uh, I think he's implying that this is going to, is real time, which it's, you know, that's a little bit. I mean, I can talk to my phone in Japanese right now. Yeah. And it'll talk back in English. Right. I now, mean, I mean, the, well, the real test is, you know, have a conversation with a, with a Japanese person. Yeah. I mean, I did that a little bit last time I was in Japan, actually. I mean, I, uh, full disclosure, I speak a little bit of language, but not very much. Yeah. So I was stumbling through and then every once in a while I would not know what the word was that I wanted to say. And so I'd say it in English into my phone and it would say it in Japanese. And that tend to be good enough, tended to be good enough to either alert the other person to what I was trying to say or just get just jog my brain enough that I could then say the but correct yeah, thing. But, but what happens if you, if you call a person in Japan Yeah. and you talk completely in English and they talk completely in Japanese and all you hear is the translation of the other person? Uh, how well does that go? Well, so I've never tried that, but I think there are commercial products that you can get now that will do that, where the translation is automatically yeah. produced. And I would guess that that is surprisingly good, but not great. It's. I think what it is, it's like really good for super simple things, and then there's a high drop off. I yeah. think it, it gets bad quickly as you get more complex. But I think very simple things like when are we meeting, and can you confirm? You know, I, I think it's very good at. And but yeah, it, does, I will, it doesn't. I, I think this is a pass. I, I would think, give him this. I'd give him this. I think that you know, there's a variety of softwares out there that that do this, and they have different feature sets. But that uh, generally speaking, you can get really good translation that's completely machine powered. And it's not quite human level, but it's way better than, you know, what you could do, like looking up phrases in a phrase book or something. Good job, Ray. Yeah. Good no, job. This was a good one. That's a, that's a yes. You get a pat on the head. Well, look, this has been a rough section for Ray. We got to throw him a bone. Yeah, yeah. Right? I mean, he's been really losing here. Okay. He's so he looks sad. So next he lists a bunch of activities, reading stuff, listening to stuff, watching stuff, even doing VR. Um, and he says that all these activities are done... Uh, through the ever-present communications web and do not require any equipment, devices, or objects that are not worn or implanted. I mean, this is just a continuation of the fact that he thinks computers are fully embedded everywhere. Yeah, but if not. you consider a cell phone in your pocket something that's worn or embedded, then he's still right. It's not worn or embedded, though. No? I mean, worn, I mean, it's in your pocket. It's something that's just on you all the time, which is not exactly the same thing. And I think, you know... I think even being generous, I have to agree, it's not exactly the same. But it's like, I think where he's wrong is he thinks the things are sewn into you or that they're like in your glasses. And in fact, we've we've hauled, held on to this, uh, this cell phone sort of book-sized form factor. Through, through necessity, though. I mean, I, again, I, 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 it remains to be seen what the demand for uh, wearables will be, but they're not generally that doable right now i mean in, right. in, in yeah so so i'll give him the part of the sentence before the end because all those things watching listening reading vr are done through the ever-present communications web yeah. that's true they do them you do them on yourself i mean i guess too. okay the watch right we mentioned the watch earlier the that, watch is worn oh I, I you gotta call that a wearable because you are literally wearing it it's just you can't Real. you make it your main computer because it doesn't do that much and realistically you're not watching things on it you might listen you're definitely not doing vr the smallest thing you can do vr with is your phone what it needs is that hologram technology and then maybe you could you could do more with it right um if it could reject all right yeah maybe um now the, this the next one. one is is really bad uh 
for Ray. Sorry. Uh, the all-enveloping tactile environment, he's talking about basically touch VR, Right. is now widely available and fully convincing. Now, widely available, he does specify in special VR booths. Like, this is not this is not something that's embedded everywhere or anything like that. Right. Um, but, yeah, even if you go to, you know, a place that's, you know, offering VR as a service that's, like, set up for VR. Yeah. Um, yeah, you're not going to get a fully You will get some booth. haptic feedback, but you will not get a fully tactile environment, and it will not be convincing. Not I mean, fully. I don't know what the cutting edge is as far as, like, body suits that you could wear. Um, I'm sure... If we Googled that, there's something on the market. There, oh, yeah. Or, or, there's a couple of different things that give you four, uh, different kinds of haptic feedback. Uh, controllers, um, suits. Um, there's a few different peripherals that do have haptic feedback. It's mostly on the order of uh, rumbles at differing intensities, though. You know, it's yeah. the, the complexity of haptic feedback is pretty simple. It's pretty much just, you know. Um, now, if, if you extend this out to like things that are being tried in universities and stuff, you know, may, maybe I, I, again, there might be something better than that. But I, yeah, it's being developed for yeah. sure. I mean, haptic feedback is a thing. I think it's coming. You know, we're going to have haptic suits. We wrote about haptic suits in our graphic novel, Let Go, which our listeners are well aware of. Um, and I think those are still coming, but they're not here yet. All right. So now we're on to business and economics. Yeah. Um. He wrote, this is just a funny sentence. Rapid economic expansion and prosperity has continued. Well, if you don't count the giant recession that happened in the interim uh, between when uh, he wrote this and now. Yeah. Um, I'm not even really going to grade this one. It just sort of shows you that how much of an just sort of optimist he is through and through. Yeah. Um, okay. Next, the vast majority of transactions include a simulated person featuring a realistic animated personality. And two-way voice communication with high-quality natural language understanding. Often there is no human involved. So he's actually even imagining that there are financial transactions um, happening between assistants. Now, yeah, um, you know, that's not that crazy. So I'll give him most of this. The only part that's completely wrong is the animated personality. I think a large amount of transactions do include a single person interacting with some kind of a computer software usually through the web and it it may have high quality natural language understanding like it might have a chat bot or you might talk to it but it might not even need that because it's so simple you just click some stuff and that's all you need to do yeah it's the extra sort of like you know, super now like type prediction that he's added to this where it's like oh it's like going to buy something in a shop from a person but it's a simulated computer person you're bar buying it from c3po now right i mean right. Th yeah obviously that part of it is silly when uh, yeah when what actually happened is we realized we didn't need that person because uh, essentially a catalog uh with that you can click buy now on will 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 do the job for but yes for most things that you yeah uh, when you buy something online, you're basically just interacting with a computer. So that's person to computer. As far as computer to computer transactions, I mean, that happens in, in the market. It does happen. It happens in finance. It happens in business to business all over the place, I think. But it's not um, that common in the average person's everyday life, maybe. Like uh, Google demoed that tech recently that like will call up and set an appointment for you to get a haircut or something. 
Yes. Know, and, and so I, you know, I, I, again, if we take out the silly personality part of this, then, right. then it, 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 it's actually a good prediction. Right. And I think we could have silly personalities. We just don't choose them. Right. I mean, because we don't want we don't to, want you know, <laughs> it's yeah. not helpful. It's not necessary. Yeah, not we, we, we don't want our whole life to be, you know, like interacting with droids in Star Wars. Um, I mean, that, that's just like not the way things go. I don't know. Um, okay, so next we have uh, household robots for performing cleaning and other chores are now ubiquitous and reliable. That's a pretty vague um, you know, we still just have Roombas and that's it. And I don't think those are very ubiquitous. They're neither ubiquitous nor super reliable. I mean, they're reliable, I guess, in the sense of not breaking down, but they're not reliable in the sense of cleaning your house that well, I don't think. So I'd say that's a no. This seems like a bad prediction, even knowing what Kurzweil knew in 1999. Yeah, this one seems like just a mistake. This just seems like on his part, I mean, he must understand how complex that you job know, is that sort of paradox of how simple tasks are often harder for AI and household cleaning is often the textbook example of that. Right. Um, it's just literally so many different subtasks and tasks and things like the Roomba can only do some of them. I don't know why he made this prediction, but this is wrong. Yeah. Automated driving systems have been found to be highly reliable and have now been installed in nearly all roads. Well, so this is funny because... It's coming. Well, he, he got one major part of it wrong, and he does this uh, in the 2009 uh, predictions as well. He thinks it, that the intelligence is coming to the roads and not to the vehicles. Yeah, I, I'm not going to worry about that. So that's, that's a, a yeah. big mistake. But if you overlook that, which I think you're right, you can, automated driving systems have been found to be highly reliable. I mean, that first part is true. They have been testing automated driving systems and they find them highly reliable they have not implemented them publicly virtually anywhere yet um they're nothing more than a few scattered pilots um so i don't think you can say they've been installed in nearly all anythings um and obviously it's become clear that it's going to be some it's going to be the car and not the road that carries the intelligence that's going to be the easier solution um well it would probably be in some ways it would maybe be technically easier if you could wire up the roads but that you know that may be harder from the sense of actually you know getting cities and places to let you do that right well the high cost of doing that coupled with the diffuse responsibility for doing it means that cars which are consumer products and therefore there's a strong incentive to make and sell new ones each year uh <laughs> are going to be the things that get this new technology basically yeah. right i mean at least at first but um, if you had but if you had a you know area where someone could just unilaterally say like we're going to do this through the roads right i feel like that would probably technologically be easier well that's what they thought you know you embed stuff under the roads and stuff like that um I don't know the technical ins and outs of it. It seems like anything you build on the roads is going to be more rigid, but possibly more reliable. Um, you know, maybe someplace like China or something could try that, you know, someplace with more unified political control. Well, what you can do is you can use that along with the cars having intelligence and, right. and the two could, uh, together are probably better than just one. Well, and one thing I do think is going to happen uh, soon is that as soon as uh, autonomous vehicles are out on the road, I think we're going to start redesigning our street signs to be more easily machine readable. Um, and I don't know exactly what that's going to look like. Cause I don't know that much about like what the state of visual uh, recognition is going to be for machines at that time. But I think it'll be smart at that point to 
you know, reevaluate all street signs and make sure they're as readable as possible to the to the machines that are that are going past them. And actually, um, that reminds me of something. Mm-hmm. We we'll take a brief intermission here. Okay. But I want to talk a little bit about next episode. Okay. Um, because you reminded me, we, we're going to do a book review for next episode. That's right. Um, and we're going to start doing a little more reviews. This is the side of idea for this uh, year is we're going to try to focus more on reviews than we have in the past. This is one of the three kinds of uh, podcasts we do. And, and we thought it'd be fun to, to do a kind of a review season. And of course, the way we do reviews is we tend to use them as like a launching point for talking about all manner of things. Right. Um, so there's a sci-fi book. It's a new sci-fi book called Autonomous. Right. I think it's actually from last year. It's written by uh, Annalie Newitz. And uh, we've read it. We're going to talk a lot about it for next episode. So the reason I'm putting this here, in case you people stopped listening before we mentioned it, is I want to give people a chance to maybe go out and read that book if they want to. Um, before we talk about it, you don't have to. We'll explain the plot. Yeah. We'll make it try to make it interesting, even if you haven't read it. Yeah. And we'll announce if there's spoilers and stuff. But if you do get a chance to read it, it might be more fun of a podcast. And we'll probably say this again at the end, but just end of intermission. Okay. All right. Um, so next we have uh, efficient personal flying vehicles using micro flaps. I don't know what that is. Small flaps, I guess, have been demonstrated and are primarily computer controlled. No. So that's a big no. And flying vehicles, again, um, Kurzweil, come on. So there's been some flying vehicle uh, progress since this book, but it's entirely been in unmanned, very small uh, drone-type vehicles, uh, quadcopter-type drones. And those have seen a big change in uh, their capabilities and their price, but uh, nothing of personal transit size. I mean... Which is, I assume, what he means by personal flying vehicle, yes. right? Yes, he means a flying vehicle that you can ride in. And anything that can lift a human being off the ground is just, you know, the <laughs> physics require that, that the, uh, you know, too energy uh, uh, dependent to be useful, basically. Yes. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, I'm, there may be exceptions in the future, but I, I don't think that's coming anytime soon. All right. Should we kick this into the, the lightning round? How about you read one, and then I have to just come up with a letter grade immediately after you read it. Okay, that sounds good. And then we'll, and then alternate. we'll alternate. Okay, yeah. sounds good. Let's do that. I don't, I'm, I'm worried for Ray in this section. All right, let's go. Politics and society. First one, people are beginning to have relationships with automated personalities as companions, teachers, caretakers, and lovers. D minus, and only because you know of real dolls and weird fringe stuff you hear about but no yeah i mean people are cosplaying their video game characters but that's as close to this as i think we get we do not live in the world of her um no an undercurrent of concern is developing with regard to the influence of machine intelligence well actually that one i think is a pass i think i'd give him a b plus on that and if you expand this to include uh, general concern about uh privacy and That's Facebook right. and so on, then, then even more so. Absolutely. Okay, next one. Public and private spaces are routinely monitored by machine intelligence to prevent interpersonal violence. No, that's an F. Yeah, I think that's correct. Uh, that just is not happening. Um, you uh, know, body cams on police is probably the closest thing we have, and that's not close. To and me. the machine intelligence isn't monitoring it or making decisions. No, 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 no. All right. People attempt to protect their privacy with near unbreakable encryption technologies, but privacy continues to be a major political and social issue with each individual's practically every move stored in a database somewhere. Okay, so uh, 
you know, actually, I think I'll give this uh, an A. Seems right to me. Uh, I do attempt to protect my privacy with uh, near unbreakable encryption technologies. Um, like, uh, you know, strong encryption uh, on my web uh, logins and on my hard drive and what have you. Um, and I think every individual's practically every move is stored in a database somewhere. I mean, practically is doing some work there, but significant amounts of our moves are definitely stored in databases. So then the the third part of this, privacy continues to be a major political and social issue, is the most questionable to me. And I think obviously for some people it is. It it, I think it should be maybe more, more. It's in the news all the time. More I'm, of an issue, but I think that's a pass. It's enough of one. I think it counts. Yeah, I mean, in Europe, maybe more than in America, but uh, uh, yeah, I mean, look, I think this is um, this is right. And the, the next one, I kind of included as a joke, but he did write this. Oh, uh, the existence of a human underclass it continues as an issue. Yes. Well, uh, yes, Ray, you are correct. There is still a human underclass. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, again, I just put that in there because the way that Ray writes about politics, this it's is like he expects that at some point that won't be the case. But he's got this is just yeah. like a bloodless way of writing about politics. I mean, this is one of the things that annoys people about some of his writing mm. is it just it seems like it doesn't leave a lot of space for, you know, analysis of the political implications of things he talks about. Right. And right. it's because he writes very pat sentences like the existence of the human underclass continues as an issue. Right. <laughs> but anyways, yeah. A, a plus. Yeah, A plus. It certainly continues to be an issue. All right, I'm going to read the next one. Okay. We're on to the arts now. We're jumping into the arts. Virtual artists and all of the arts are emerging and are taken seriously. Yeah, so uh, I would say that that is a no. Um, while there are some virtual artists in some of the arts, uh, I don't think any of them are taken terribly seriously yet. I agree. So I give him an F. <laughs> I mean, maybe a D, I guess, because there are some emerging virtual artists. Full stop. Well, and here's here's again the problem is when they are good, the question will always be who designed the virtual artist and aren't they the real artist? Okay, next one: visual, musical, and literary art created by human artists typically involve a collaboration between human and machine intelligence. A plus. I mean. I mean, you know, if we define machine intelligence not as, you know, your robot buddy that plays the drums for you and uh, looks like uh, a droid, um, but we say machine intelligence is just basically software of all kinds, then I think, you know, this is just, you know, extension of tools used to create art. Well, I guess it depends on whether, because in 1999, um, visual, musical, and literary art was already uh, using machines right it was already using software like video editing mm-hmm. and word processors and spell check and things like that yeah so i arguably this was true in 1999 so by that, yeah so uh, it, by that definition i feel like that was already true so i assume that he means that the machine intelligence is doing some amount of the actual like composition or uh some amount of like procedural generation if it's a visual thing or some amount of the actual writing, if it's a literary thing, which I don't think we're mo- we're really there. Yeah, I, to me, I, I guess the reason I answered it the way that I did, yeah, and I'm interpreting the way that I did is I, I'm kind of objecting to the premise, right? Um, I just I don't think there's an easy line to draw there. I agree with that. I think it's definitely true that most art is created using digital tools, 
And even if you didn't, even if you make your art completely by hand, you probably Googled something <laughs> in your research process before you made the art, right? So I feel like you definitely used some digital tools and some machine learning was involved in some of those tools. And like, you know, in um, Photoshop, if you're using something that helps you find the edges of something, or if you're using a, you know, software plugin that, you know, puts like quantizes things onto the beat. I mean, I don't know. The, to me, this feels like it counts. If you can include video games as art, which I think is a fair thing to do, uh, then they... Roger Ebert wouldn't, famously. But, yes, well... But I would, yeah. Yeah, I think you I think you should. Uh, then they definitely uh, meet that uh, criteria. So, okay, I, I guess uh, you convinced me. I'll go on your side. The type of artistic and entertainment product in greatest demand as measured by revenue generated, this makes it easy, continues to be virtual experience software. Well, and I think you can give him this if you simply redefine virtual experience software to include video games, right? Because then it's true if we include video games as virtual experience softwares. And I think that's a reasonable argument that you can make that a video game is software that creates a virtual experience. Now, again, does he mean, does it have to be in your glasses to be a virtual experience? Because if it does, then he's wrong, obviously. I think he means VR. And I, and I think he does too. And but I, I think, but again, I agree with your splitting of hairs. I, I, I want to kind of split the hair there and say, if he means VR, then obviously this is not true. But if he's willing to say that a virtual experience can be a virtual experience in VR or on a TV screen or on a phone screen, then I think he's absolutely right. Uh, warfare. Yeah, sure. Uh, warfare. The primary threat to security comes from small groups combining human and machine intelligence using unbreakable encrypted communication these include one, disruptions to public information channels using software viruses and two, bioengineered disease agents. Most flying weapons are tiny, some as small as insects, with microscopic flying weapons being researched. Well, let's do that backwards, right? Okay. So are microscopic flying weapons being researched? Almost Pro certainly. Probably somewhere at the Pentagon Almost right now. Almost certainly right now. <laughs> yes. um, are most flying weapons tiny, some as small as insects? No, thank God. No, I think there's maybe like one functional like insect-sized weapon out there, but most weapons are still uh, drone size, you know, airplane size. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, as far as like, you know, the, the biggest threats being... Um, uh, disruption to public information channels using software viruses is one. Um, that's a threat. Uh, is it the primary threat to security? Honestly, have disruptions to public information channels happened? I feel like all of the threat has been, you know, leaking information from institutions and not actually like cutting off or disrupting the channels. Like, has CNN ever gone off the air or like any, co any television network ever gone off the air because of hackers or has any... I guess some websites have been brought websites down because of DDoS, but that's more, that's not a virus generally. That's generally a DDoS attack, right? That's generally a distributed. Yeah. I, I, it's, it's in the same sort of spirit as a virus. Spirit. Yes. But not, um, yeah. Yep. Yeah, I mean, public information channels is, is confusing, um, what that means. But, uh, I mean, I don't know. Viruses, I guess, given how how digital and connected we are, they don't feel like they're in the news that much or as big a deal as people thought. Yeah, yeah. it seems like a, a distributed Linux-based cloud computing has actually kind of defeated the virus threat for the most part because the systems that actually do the really heavy lifting are quite secure, even though the systems that like we use as the dumb terminals are not so secure. You know, so I think that threat has not been as bad as it would have. 
seemed like it would have been from the late 90s when everything was done on desktop computers, which were very susceptible to viruses, you know? Um, Bioengineered disease agents is the other one, and thankfully, no. And I, I would add to this that, in again, in the end of the chapter where he uh, sort of fictionalizes things, um, he gets specific and he describes the Oklahoma incident of October 2013 when a uh, disgruntled student... Um, attacked with a modified flu virus and uh, 16,000 people died before the uh, cure was distributed. Right. Um, and nothing obviously like that, that has yeah. happened yet. Uh, I guess, oh, one thing I was thinking while you were talking is uh, dis- a disruption of public information channels. Oh, this is going back to software viruses Sorry. for a second? Yeah, just jumping back to disruptions of, of public information channels. It's not using a software virus, but it was affected, I guess, um, uh, through, you know... Um, taking advantage of social media and what have you the uh you know the spread of fake yeah i think social media counts as a public information channel no i know but i'm saying like the disruption wasn't uh that uh, cnn went off the air it was that they you know um reported fake stories during the last presidential election and people believed a bunch of fake stories were true because of things like uh you know uh, websites that were made to look legitimate but weren't and then links to them were spread around and so that's a kind of disruption of a public information channel not in the same way as it's like not a virus it's not a virus and it's not in the same way as like knocking cnn off the air but it did like pollute the information environment with false information which made it then harder to yeah, get I, you know, real information i'm gonna give this like a c though yeah i think that's fair. um but anyways the bioengineer disease agents that's an f yeah and i'm happy to give that an f because i'm glad we don't live in a world that had an Oklahoma incident right I mean the technical capacity to do some of this sort of uh, bioengineering stuff is of course there uh, so we just have to be happy that so far a combination of uh, you know law enforcement and uh, people not being horrible supervillains has kept this at bay <laughs> all right health and medicine many of the life processes encoded in the human genome which was deciphered more than 10 years earlier are now largely understood along with the information processing mechanisms underlying aging and degenerative conditions such as cancer and heart disease. Well, that's like a D minus because the only part of that that's true is the human genome was deciphered, right? Uh, we sequenced it. We sequenced uh, Which is, uh, if that's, I what, think he that's means, what he means. Well, deciphered may mean understand. And if that's the case, then no. So uh, next one. The the expected lifespan has now substantially increased again to over 100. I, I'm going to say no because no one expects it, I guess. Right? But the thing is that right. people that are alive today that are still youngish could, could live to over 100. Maybe they should be expecting to live to over 100 because, of course, there's going to be developments in the meantime. Right. So it's not... Uh, depending on how you want to parse this, it's possible. But is it expected? No. You know, it's still normal like it was for our grandparents' generation to die somewhere between 70 and 90. So I'm going to, yeah, I think this is probably an F. That's an F. Okay. Um, There is increasing recognition of the danger of the widespread availability of bioengineering technology. Bioengineering technology is, you know, not a huge concern, I don't think. And I'm not certain it needs to be right now, although there are dangers associated with it. It seems to be well enough controlled that, you know, we don't see small groups, uh, bioengineering viruses or anything like that at this time. 
Okay, uh, computerized health monitors built into watches, jewelry, and clothing, which diagnose both acute and chronic health conditions, are widely used. F. I mean, yes, we have portable health monitors now. Um, do they diagnose things? No. Almost nothing. There's um, a couple of things that can be diagnosed by like a, a digital technology that you wear, but it's not widely used. There are some things, and you know, there are websites where you go answer a series of questions and they try to diagnose you and or you know you can pull up doctors online pretty easily there there are cool things you can do with technology but no not this right uh so that's an f and then there's just a few more so um uh now we're into the realm of philosophy and uh you want to read this one there are prevalent reports of computers passing the turing test although these instances do not meet the criteria um Established by knowledgeable observers. Okay, I'm going to give this one a pass. I'm going to give this one uh, something like a B, like a B plus because uh, I think there are uh, a lot of reports of this, uh, at least within the tech press. I don't know that they've, you know, reached the masses too much. There was a pretty highly publicized one uh, in which a chatbot successfully uh, passed a Turing test as a 13 year old boy so that's a little bit of a lower bar than it's not supposed to be a human adult but it passed a Turing test for a human child and that example I think shows that what something that's changed since Kurzweil wrote this in 1999 and again um, I, I think people have a much broader knowledge of what the Turing test is than they did in 1999 because it's been popularized in a few TV shows and movies and things. Yeah. But uh, is that the Turing test just really doesn't seem like a great test or particularly relevant because it can be gamed in so many ways. I mean, it ends up becoming a test of, you know, can you write a pretty good chatbot that can fool people and not, I mean, it's a pretty rough proxy for intelligence, I feel like. Yeah, I think that's accurate. And I think uh, tests that are sort of Turing-derived or Turing-inspired but have different specific rules will probably continue to be developed um, toward making a true sort of AI test at some point. Um, but it's hard to gauge when something is truly intelligent. Uh, I mean, that's it's just a slippery thing. So we're always going to have you know variations on it. And I think uh, the prediction is right in that as we get closer to real intelligence in a machine, we are generally more interested in ways to test it. So I think that that feels right as far as a philosophical uh, prediction. Um, so next we have the subject, and this is the last one. Mm -hmm. The subjective experience of computer-based intelligence is, is seriously discussed, although the rights of machine intelligence have not yet entered mainstream debate. Well, here on Review the Future, that seriously discussed but i feel like in the wider world at large uh i'm not sure that the subjective experience of computer-based intelligence is seriously discussed. i would argue there's been an uptick in this issue in popular media in fiction uh i mean things like westworld yes um i i just i would say it seems like there is more um science fiction that is popular and well known that is dealing with these issues Yes, I agree with that. I think it is being discussed by artists and it's being discussed by nerds like us and uh, that there is some uptick in it, but um, 
I don't see serious discussion on the level of punditry or uh, policymakers at this time. Well, and the reason that, you know, I think Kurzweil thinks this is the case is because, again, he's imagining everything computer-based being imbued with all this extra personality. And also being much more powerful, remember? I mean, he thinks we're like three or four... I think that's part of it as well. ...fours of magnitude more powerful than we are. But I, I, I kind of feel like even at today's level of power, if the primary operating system was heavily anthropomorphized as like a being that this stuff would just naturally be a lot more on people's minds. Yeah. But that's just not the operating systems that we use. Because actually, Alexa and Siri, just by virtue of having names oh, yeah. and talking, I think have been part of the cause of some more cultural discussion of these issues. That's true. So we're wrapping this up in the final grade for Ray Kurzweil's predictions of 2019 oh, is, I, what do you think? I mean, I didn't like add them all up and divide or anything. So this is totally subjective, but I don't think it's that good. Give me a letter. I mean, it seems like it's like a D or yeah, something. Yeah, it's a D. Well, okay. There are a lot of, there are a lot of low grades there. <sighs> no, I'm going to give him a C actually. All right. Because why? we, because again, I'm not adding this up. This is just intuitive. I started this out saying, you know, I want to give him the benefit of the doubt overall for making these predictions on the record 20 years ahead of time in 1999. Yeah. Um, and again, if you and take if you... the spirit of these things and again, even the things that he's wrong about, most of them aren't crazy. Most of them seem like, all right, give it another 10 years. Five to 10 years yeah. depending on the thing. Yeah. Yeah. So I am C minus C minus. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm feeling like there are a few things that are really dead on and really quite prescient and amazing, given that this was a world with, you know, beige box computers, basically no cell phones, uh, you know, a long ways away from personal computing being a, 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 a cell phone, you know, it's a smartphone in your pocket. Um, so, but I don't know, man. There's just a lot of stuff that is just really, really far off still. It seems like, you know, uh, I agree they're not crazy, but I think they did not meet, make the mark. Um, before we wrap this up completely, I do want to mention one of the things I looked at in my research was that there's a Reddit thread out there that says the the title is of it is Ray Kurzweil's 2009 is our 2019. And this thread is worth a, a look if you found this interesting because it basically goes through all the 2009 predictions uh, that he made in the same book, which are remarkably good. For and now. For yeah. now. Some of them were in place in 2009. Some of them came in in the subsequent decade, but virtually all of them are in place in some way now if you give him the same kind of benefit of the doubt that we were just giving him on these. Like Sometimes the word isn't right, but the intention is. Other times it's exactly right. And those... Uh, give me some hope that uh, what we're seeing here and the reason this is such a low grade is just because he was being optimistic and trying the you know difficult thing of trying to think exponentially and he ended up just overshooting slightly and that in fact these things are, are coming down the pike but are just not here yet. Yeah, well again, there, like, as I said earlier, the, the one possibility is he's just going to be 10 years behind. Right. Uh, he was 10 years too optimistic. And uh, the other possibility is that he's going to be farther and farther off with each prediction. So, you know, 
We'll do this again in yeah, 2029. In 10 years, if we're we'll still find out this podcast, or it'll be the Mindcast or something. Well, our personal assistants will be making it for us. That's right. And we'll just be setting some high-level parameters, like turning up the snark or something. And uh, next episode, primarily, will be about the book Autonomous. So again, if you want to read that book, um, now's your chance to do it. Yeah, it's available on the uh, all-pervasive web of communications. But I want to stress, you really don't have to. If you don't have time to read a book and or you don't care to read a new sci-fi book and you just want to hear us talk, it's going to be fine. We'll talk you through it as well. And there's going to be a lot of interesting issues that come out of it. Yeah, I think it's a, an interesting piece to talk about and it'll uh, allow us to do some of our, our fun sort of speculative stuff. So we couldn't be ba- happier to be back. And we've, we've got a lot of uh, more episodes coming for you guys. So keep us in your feed and uh, we will see you soon. Uh, until next time. I'm John Perry. I'm Ted Cover, And you've been listening to Review the Future. To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening.